That's next week. This week, we are continuing our series through the Gospel of John. Last, last week, Pastor Albert brought, brought us back in with John chapter 15. And John chapter 15 is the very familiar passage for many of you who have been in the church where Jesus refers to himself with the metaphor of the vine. He is the vine and we are the branches. And the genuine believers will bear fruit. Meaning, those who are truly connected to Christ and who abide in Christ will bear fruits. And one of the fruits of being truly, genuinely connected to Christ is obedience. It is an obedience that's not just out of duty. It's not out of force, but it is an obedience that flows out of our love. And therefore, one of the main commands that Jesus summarizes, right? He says, if you love me, if you remain in me, you will bear fruit. The fruit is obedience. What does it look like to obey you, Jesus? And he summarizes it with one command, and that is the command to love one another. That is the abiding imperative. I've entitled our message this morning, the abiding imperative, the abiding imperative, and that imperative is to love one another. And it's very interesting, Greek nerds, that in the passage that we're going to look at, there is actually no Greek imperative. There's subjunctives. Jesus turns our imperative into a subjunctive. Now, I'll get into that. All right. So, you have God's word. Meet me in John chapter 15 now. John chapter 15. Okay. And here we see the command. And we'll read the passage as we go verse by verse. Here's the command, John 15, starting in verse 12. I'll give you another second to pull that up, and I'll have it for you in a minute. Okay, but I want you to see the whole passage. Pull it up so you can see the surrounding context. The command is love one another. It's very simple. It's not a... In places in the Bible, Jesus refers to it as a new command, but it's not a new command. We understand this command to love one another. The difference is... We've heard through the Old Testament, as well as Jesus teached uh, in other places, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor is to love the person next to you, to love the person, anyone in this world, to love your neighbor. Your neighbor may or may not be a believer, but you are called to love them. Other places in the scriptures where Jesus tells us we, we ought to love our enemies because it's through our love for our enemies that we reflect the gospel and God can use our love for even towards our enemies to lead them to Christ. But here Jesus says specifically, this is my commandment that I give to you, love one another. This is a higher command, I will say, than love your neighbor as yourself because this is telling you to love a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. One another refers to brothers and sisters who share a similar union with Christ. There's a spiritual connection. All of us equal at the cross. All of us sinners deserving of death and judgment. All of us receiving mercy and grace. Does not matter if you're rich, poor, male, female, young, old. All of us are equal at the cross and we receive God's forgiveness and his mercy through Christ. This is why you can meet a missionary or you can, you can go to another country, or even just at the library or at your school, and you meet another believer. And there's something special about that, because there's a spiritual union. You hurt when you hear about your persecuted Christian friends, or, or people that aren't literally your friends, but you call them friends, right? Because there's a spiritual connection. This is what it means to love one another. That's, that's what we see. That's the command. And what we see this morning is that there are, there are actually three results. Three results. You can call them fruits. 
Three results of loving one another. So first, it is imperative that we love one another because here's why. Point number one, the first imperative, first fruit of this imperative, it is imperative that we love one another as the fruit of his love, right? As the fruit of his love. And here's verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment. Now again, he doesn't command love one another. It's not in the Greek imperative. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And actually, the person who obeyed the imperative is Jesus. This is my commandment that my Father gave me to do His will and come to the earth. And I loved you by going to the cross and lay myself down for you, Jesus says, so that my, I took the imperative because you couldn't obey the law. So for you, it becomes a subjunctive. You Greek nerds, think about that. Now, for everybody else, including myself, it's not. <laughs> um, all, it, all that means is the only reason why for us we could love one another is because Jesus first loved us. He obeyed that commandment. So he says, this is my commandment. And again, it's not a command. He puts it in the subjunctive. He says, that you love one another. It, basically, the result of being loved by Christ, of being connected to the vine, is that you love one another as I've loved you. And how has he loved us? Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus demonstrates for us what it means to love one another because he laid down his life for us. And later we'll see that same command restated in verse 17. And that kind of tells you that when you look at verses 12 to 17, the main point is to love one another. Loving one another refers to demonstrating Christ-like love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, John the Apostle, John the Apostle uh, repeats this several times. Now, eight times throughout his writings, he repeats this. Now, there's more than eight times where he says other, he speaks in other ways of why we should love one another, but specifically the words, the command, love one another eight times. John 13, 24, uh, here in John 15, 12, and 17, that's three times in, in the Gospel of John, and later in his letters, in his epistles, 1 John 3, 11, 1 John 3, 23, 1 John 4, 7, 1 John 11 to 12, 2 John verse 5. You don't have to remember these because all he's saying over and over again that this is the commandment that we've heard that we must love one another. In other words, he's making the point. You can imagine John being really annoying in his community group. His community group of 11, that's 12 disciples minus Judas, okay, in Jesus' community group. And every time Peter and, and James are fighting, here comes John. Hey, guys, whatever you guys are fighting about, you guys got to work it out. We got to love one another because Jesus has given us a mission. We got to stay focused. We got to love one another. See, John repeats himself. He's that guy always reminding his community group and then reminding his people, you got to love one another. You got to love one another. He's, it's replete. It's a theme in John to love one another. Now, what's interesting, what's interesting is that, once again, as I mentioned, John doesn't give us a new command. Jesus doesn't state it as a new command. And one of the reasons I believe that's true is because loving one another, it fulfills all of the horizontal commandments of Scripture. Just think of the Ten Commandments. Think of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are vertical, meaning they pertain to our relationship with God. I love God. Don't have any other idols, honor the Sabbath. But, 
But the remaining six of the Ten Commandments are horizontal, which means they apply to our relationship with other people. And so if you simply love one another, you will honor your father and mother. If you love one another, you will not murder, murder one another. another. You will not cheat on them. If you love one another, you will not steal from them. If you love one another, you will not lie about them. If you love one another, you will not covet what belongs to them. So immediately in verse 13, Jesus makes a reference to the cross. And he says, I obeyed all of these commandments perfectly, and I went to the cross to love you. Right? Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. Right? It's the opposite of loving ourselves. And so actually, if we actually strive to love one another, we are obeying the Ten Commandments. But get this, Jesus didn't have to give us new commands. He doesn't come with the new Ten Commandments. He knew that we couldn't even obey the first Ten Commandments. So he doesn't relist them because he's listed them already. They're in the Old Testament. And people couldn't obey And so he knows that. So he says, look, I'm going to go to the cross and love on you, and I give you just what ought to happen when you are loved by me. This is my commandment that I give you. If you are loved by me, you ought to. The natural default result, the fruit of remaining in me and being genuinely connected to me as the vine is you will bear the fruit of love for one another. You see, when you look at the Ten Commandments, when you look at the law, it tells you how much you've sinned. But when you look at the cross, it tells you how much you're loved. And it's of the very power of Christ crucified that transforms our hearts. The cross does something amazing to us. The cross does something transformative to us. The cross enables us to love even our enemies. Because when we look at the cross, we recognize that we were at one time enemies of God. But yet, because he loved us, he didn't just love us as servants, he loved us as his friends. Greater love has none than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And so here we're instructed to love fellow believers who are also sinners, who have also been converted just like you and me, and are being transformed by his love. You see, what happens is rather than giving us a new commandment, again, he doesn't write it in an imperative, he doesn't speak it in the imperative. Instead, He says, love one another as I have loved you. What happens is the Spirit of God has written the law of God on our hearts. No longer do we need a list of commandments from Jesus. We just need to be connected to him, loved by him. And what should happen, what ought to happen is he gives us a new heart. Not new commandments. He gives us a new heart. And a new heart enables us to love one another, which fulfills the commandments. He's given us his own example once again. Now look again at verses 12 to 13. And you'll notice in verse 12 to 13, look at the standard. The standard's high. I can confess to you that I cannot love anyone like this. Okay, he says this, love one another as I have loved you. That's a higher standard. There's no confusion there. How has Jesus loved us? unconditionally. He loved us even though we didn't deserve it. Here's the confusion with love your neighbor as yourself. Some people, they read, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, I'm going to love my neighbor like I love myself. (laughs) I'm going to love my neighbor as I love myself. (laughs) Love your neighbor as you would love yourself. And you might say, well, you know what? I can treat my neighbor this way because that, I don't care. I'm okay with it. 
I'm okay with people doing this to me, so I can do this to them. But what if they're not okay with that? You see, love your neighbor as yourself, there's a limitation there. It is very good. It's a very good command. Obviously, it's biblical. Love your neighbor as yourself. Even Jesus said it. That's a high command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, in other words, do unto others as you would want done unto you. Treat other people the way that you would want to be treated. But an even higher standard than love your neighbor as yourself is love someone the way that Jesus loved you and me. Isn't that the highest standard? To love someone as I have loved you. And he knows that we're incapable of obeying this command, that we can only strive to love people, but we're going to make mistakes, right? We're going to have anger. We're going to sin against our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's also another reason why I think here he doesn't put it into the imperative. Instead, the imperative is what? Remain in me. I want you to think deeply about that. His imperative to believers is not love one another. He says, this is what you ought to do. But my command, how do you love one another? Remain in me. The only way that we are actually going to be able to love one another is to remain in Jesus' love, to stay connected to Christ, to constantly revisit the cross. I'll come back to that in the application. And once again, he says, greater love has none than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. So you revisit Jesus laying down his life for you. That's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. He laid down his life to save us. Now, you and I, we may not ever have to die for another brother or sister in Christ. Maybe God will call you to that high calling. But we may not have to literally die for another person, but we are called to sacrifice for fellow believers. Again, when we remain in Christ, when we remain in his love, he reminds us of our status before him, and he sends us out. And how do we lay our lives down for one another? By listening to each other, by helping each other, by encouraging each other, by giving of our resources, which includes our time, our service, right? Our time, our talents, using our gifts and our resources and our treasure, using our money to bless other people who are in need. Our time, talents, and treasures. In other words, we love one another through our time, talents, and treasures because we remain in Christ. Now, I'm going to love you this morning by not belaboring this point and prolonging the sermon. So, so that's the first point, okay? We must, we must love one another as the fruit of his love. Now, secondly, point number two is we must love one another, right? This is his commandment, that we love one another as the fruit of his friendship. Again, the command, remain in me. The result of remaining in him, love one another, becomes your ought, becomes your fruit, And it's because it flows out of friendship with Christ, his friendship. Look at verses 14 to 15 where we see this. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Sounds conditional. Sounds conditional. But then look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. So even though verse 14 sounds conditional, read it carefully. This is not if you do what I command, then you will be my friends. That's a conditional statement, right? A conditional statement is if you love me, I will love you back. If you do this to me, I'll do this for you. If you serve me, I will serve you, right? But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say if 
you love me. Then you will be my friends if you obey my commands. No, no, he doesn't say that. He says you are already my friends if you do what I command, meaning he's identifying true believers. And what's the command here? To love one another. So he's saying genuine believers, genuine friends of Jesus will love each other. Oh, how the disciples needed to hear this as they bickered because they were so different. Just like in any church, personalities are so different among the 12 disciples, and they had to learn not to compete with each other, but to love one another for the sake of Christ's calling, his mission, and their own sanctification. Now, Jesus did not command us from his heavenly throne. Once again, I love that emphasis. I want you to get it into your mind and your heart that he doesn't actually give us an imperative. You know, just imagine Jesus. He doesn't sit on his heavenly throne and command us, love one another. He already did that. God has already given that command. And in the Old Testament, he knew, once again, that we couldn't obey it. There's a song where there's a chorus, or not the chorus, but there's a verse where it says, he left behind heaven's throne to build it here inside. And what that means is that he left behind heaven's throne to build his throne inside our hearts. That's amazing. So instead of sitting on his heavenly throne and commanding us to love one another, which he knows we can't do, instead what he does is he left heaven's throne and he builds the throne, his throne in our hearts So that rather than obeying an external command, we love because Jesus is reigning in our hearts. This is the fulfillment of the new covenant where it says the law of God will be written on our hearts. So it's no longer law because it's love. You no longer need the law. The law is good. You need instructions. But you no longer need it when it becomes part of who you are. When you're truly connected to Christ, then the fruits of being connected to Christ is a natural or should I say supernatural display of love for one another. He he wrote the law within us. Now, I want to say something about Jesus calling us his friend. You know, Abraham was called a friend of God, Isaiah 41, verse 8. In Exodus 33, 11, it tells us that God spoke to Moses face to face like a man speaks to his friend. Now, being a friend of God does not mean we treat Jesus like our buddy. I remember when I was in high school, I wanted that t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. And then someone introduced me to the preaching of John MacArthur. No, nope, I don't want that. <laughs> uh, Jesus is my Lord, right? He's, it's lordship salvation. He is my Lord. But here's, here's what uh, D.A. Carson points out. D.A. Carson makes an interesting observation. He says, never does the Bible describe God or Jesus as anyone's friend. But I thought it just said that we're friends of Jesus. Hear me on this. Instead, Carson points out that the Bible always describes human beings as friends of God, which speaks to the privilege of being a friend of God. In other words, we don't walk around saying, Jesus is my buddy, I treat him like one of my friends. And it's actually true, right? It doesn't describe God as Abraham's friend or that God is Moses' friend as if he's one of his friends. It says, says, Abraham was a friend of God. And so we would not walk around, I would not walk around saying, oh yeah, I'm Hanley, and uh, you know, God is a friend of Hanley. I would say, man, God is 
our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our Master. He's the Creator. But by His grace and mercy, He's called me His friend. I'm a friend of God. Beloved, are you a friend of God this morning? Are you a friend of God this morning? If, you're, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have the privilege that while we deserve to suffer judgment and we were born enemies of God, He's called us His friend. He's called us His friend. Right? So, so it's very clear. I, I, I thought that was helpful because as you look at this, if you notice the way that the Bible describes our friendship, it's always Jesus' friends are the object of His love. And that flows with the reasons why we are considered friends of God is because of how Jesus treated us. He treated us like a friend when he died for us, yet we were his enemies. So because we are the objects of his love towards us, because he came and chose to say, that person, that person, that's you, 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 I'm dying for you. I'm going to treat you like the greatest of friends. I'm going to lay my life down for you, even though you don't deserve it. I'm going to treat you like a friend. And that therefore we become friends of God. Enemies of God become friends of God. He loved us and died for us. So I want to make that really clear, right? Nowhere is John or Jesus trying to say, let's bring Jesus down and just treat him like a friend. No, instead, it's the privilege of being called friends of God. It's Jesus that calls us his friends. Now, connecting to the main topic of loving one another, Jesus calls us his friends because because it says we are to treat other believers that way, right? Because of how he treated us. And in verse 15, we see how Jesus treated us like friends. It says Jesus treats us like friends, not just because he died for us, right? But it says he, he revealed his mission to us. Now, I want you to notice there, verse 15. It says this, no longer do I call you servants, but, but he is our master. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. In other words, Jesus, how are you treating us like friends? Besides dying for us, which is the greatest sacrifice, how is it that you treat us like, like your friends? No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. Now, he's speaking here directly to his 12 disciples, and he's taught them the plan of God. He's taught them that he's going to the cross at this point and that he's going to rise again. Whether they fully understood it at this point is, is another question. But he's taught them every step of the way. Even when he's doing his miracles and they don't understand, he pulls them aside afterwards. He teaches them everything. Now, some of you own a business. And as you're thinking about your business plans, you might have some employees. You may or may not reveal everything to your employees, even if it's for their good. Right? You, you may not like bat it around with them. You might not say, hey, employees... You know, I have this new idea for the business. Maybe, you know, you can give me your feedback. I mean, you might do that. But oftentimes there's something called business partners where you might talk to your business partner. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Even if you're talking about how to better treat your employees, right, and how to advance a business. Or if you don't have business partners, you might talk to your friend who has a business mind. And you might talk to her. And you might say, hey, what do you think about this idea? You see, the way that Jesus treats us is not just like employees or, or servants. He treats us like fellow partners in the mission. He tells us exactly that, that, that God's plan was not just to save the Jews but the Gentiles. This is the mystery hidden for ages now revealed through Christ. 
He, he tells us that he's coming again and he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth later. He tells everything through the scriptures to you and me. So yes, he's telling his disciples, but then we are also his disciples and we have the scriptures. And so Jesus, by giving us the revelation of God and giving us truth, he treats us. He treats us as his partners in the mission, even though we are his servants, even though we are his masters. Now, historically, historically, there are, uh, in Roman times, there was a special group called Friends of the King. And one commentator explains that this was a privileged group of people. They were able to visit the emperor of Rome anytime. Anytime they had access to his chambers, they could talk to him. And the king would consult this group of friends before speaking with his generals and his governors and his rulers. In the same way, you and I have access to Jesus. He has given us access through prayer. We are to pray in Jesus' name. He has given us access to the heavenly throne room. Now, God may not reveal to us everything about each day in the future, but he, again, he's given us enough in Scripture for us to know how to walk. Okay, so we have access, and that's, that's why we are literally friends of King Jesus, friends of King Jesus. He, he reveals his missions and his plans to us. And so that leads us to point number three. So it's imperative for us, number one, to love one another, first as the fruit of his love toward us. Second, as we are to love one another as the fruit of his friendship toward us. But mission, third, it is imperative that we love one another as and for the fruit of his mission. As and, f and for the fruit of his mission. That's point number three. When I say as the fruit of his mission, we are also part of his mission. So his mission towards us was to save us. And when he saves us, he transforms our hearts and we love one another as a fruit of his mission toward us. But when I say for the fruit of his mission, it's love one another, get along with each other, because we got to stay focused on the mission. If we spend too much time fighting, then we can't stay focused on the mission. We actually hinder the mission. We hinder evangelism. We hinder our witness. Now look with me at verse 16 and 17. It says, You did not choose me, and I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Again, frame this teaching of Jesus choosing and appointing the, the 12 disciples and then by extension us to bear fruit. Now, we'll explain what that fruit is, but all of it goes back to here's why you got to love one another. The fruit of loving one another is for the sake of bearing fruit, and I will show you that this is the fruit of his mission, okay? So Jesus, he's just spoken to his disciples about the privilege of being called friends just to make sure that they don't become puffed up with pride, okay, just so that they don't think, Oh, we're friends of Jesus. We are superior to everybody else. We're friends of Jesus. He reminds them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, back in those days, it was typical not for the rabbi to select his disciples, but it was for the disciples to select their rabbi. It was typical back then for disciples to say, I want to study under this rabbi, or I want to study under that rabbi, so I'm going to go and apply, or I'm going to go follow this rabbi. 
I mean, I think that's true today, and you have to apply, but some of you are studying your PhD, your doctoral program, and you're probably choosing what professor or what scholar you want to do your doctoral dissertation under. You may, you, he may be full, she may be full, they might reject you, but you kind of choose based on that, or you, may even, you might even choose a program at a school based on the professors there. It's similar, okay? But Jesus chose them, this ragtag group of 12 disciples, one would betray him. This is not your cream of the crop. I mean, you, you, you look at the Gospel of John, you look at the other Gospels, you study the disciples, and you're like, this is not your choice group of people to, to set up the kingdom of God on this, on this earth, right? To advance Jesus' mission in the kingdom of God. This is not the right group, but Jesus went and chose them, and he called them to be fishers of men. So, so this is a, specifically first to the twelve. Hey, twelve disciples, you did not choose me. You didn't even want this mission. You weren't looking for this mission. <clears throat> I was on a mission, and I chose you. Now, by extension, this applies to us. Because not only did Jesus cho choose them for their salvation, that's true. When Jesus chose them to be his disciples, he would also save them. When he chooses us to be his disciples, he also will save us. So J Jesus does choose us for our salvation. But remember, this is Paul, this is. John, not Paul. Okay, this is not Romans. This is not Ephesians. This is John. And the emphasis here is not just salvation. It's this. Appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So for his 12 disciples, Jesus chose them for salvation and for service. Appointed. This, the Greek word for appointed, it literally means to be set apart for a special service. One commentator explains that the word can be understood as you've been ordained for a special type of service. And when you understand the context, then you understand what this fruit is. When it says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, set you apart, 12 disciples, that you should go and bear fruit. This is the fruit of Jesus' mission. Now, the fruit of the mission does mean our salvation. But once you're saved, you go on mission too. And Jesus uses you to bring more people to salvation. Right? That's what it is. The fruit that should abide. What is the fruit that should abide? People coming to Christ. And when they come to Christ, and when they're connected to Christ and they're saved, the, the, the mission of Christ, the fruit of that mission, it's eternal. That is the fruit that abides. All things will fade, but our salvation will carry through and it will carry over into the new creation. And then so when it says, so what, whenever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That's in context too. Whatever you ask in the context of Jesus' mission. So that could include this. Jesus, we're about to do your mission and we're having some disunity here in this church. We're having some problems here. Will you help us to love one another so that we could be focused on your mission. Jesus, there's somebody that I'm trying to witness to, but I just don't have the words, or they seem very hardened against the gospel. Will you soften their heart? Ask in Jesus' name. Ask that the Father would open the heart of someone so that they could be evangelized. This is for the sake of his mission. Ask, pray for people to get saved. Pray for missionaries. Pray for yourself. Pray for your community groups. Pray for your pastors. Pray for yourself to be missional. 
That's the fruit that abides, right? I chose you, appointed you. Now, the appointment is not just for the 12. Now, specifically, original context, he's talking to the 12, but you and I are given the Great Commission. So this applies to us. Jesus chose us for salvation and service. Can you say that? Jesus chose us for salvation and service. Salvation and service. So Jesus did not just choose us to be saved and just to chill But he chose us to be saved and then to love one another. And as we love one another, we're also on mission. He chose us for service. Do you understand that when you look at the ministries of a church, how many service ministries that the end result is loving other people? Ushering, security, you name it. Counseling, care, group leader, teacher, visitation, you name it. How, when we serve God... We're really serving one another. Think about it. You love God. He saves you for salvation and service. But when you serve people, most of the ministries of service is to love one another. It's to love one another. Even prayer. You say, well, prayer is an individual thing. It's just me and God. No, no, you pray for other people, right? You're serving them. You're serving them. But there's more to this. There's more to this. There's the missional aspect of this. There's the missional aspect is that loving one another strengthens our evangelism. The connection between the fruit of Jesus' mission and the fruit of loving one another is this. John 13, 35. John 13, 35 says, They will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. They will know that, that, that you are truly connected to me, the vine. They will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Loving one another strengthens our evangelism. Our witness is amplified by our love for one another. If you speak about God's love to non-Christians, they can easily look back. And they can say to you, and they say, you speak of the transformative, reconciling love of Christ, but you Christians don't even love one another. You Christians fight and you bicker and you divide over things. How can I believe you that Jesus' love is real or that Jesus' love has reconciling power when you guys aren't even reconciled yourself? Now, I know that that's a reality. That's where we have to be honest and say, yes, you know what? We, we are all hypocrites to a certain degree, but Christianity, the truthfulness of Christianity does not rest on the performance of imperfect, fallible Christians. The truthfulness of Christianity rests on the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ. And you point them back to Christ and saying, we are all in process. But nonetheless, nonetheless, the more we love one another, the more we focus on the mission. Because we're not fighting. Instead, we're focused on the mission. And the more we present the love of Christ to the unbelieving world. When they see, when they get a glimpse of how you care for each other in your community groups, when someone's sick, you're praying for each other. You're helping each other. When someone, uh, when someone needs help, you, you, you cook and you deliver food. Financial resources, you, you pray for each other. When the unbelieving world sees that, that's what they need to see. Actually, the unbelieving world needs to see what, what happens in our community groups. Because when they see that, they see a tangible example of Jesus' love. They don't know Jesus yet. But they see people who have been loved by Jesus, or supposedly... And so when they see how we love one another, it's a powerful witness. It's a transformative witness. When they see how people struggle with sin, how people have conflict, but in the church we forgive each other, we reconcile, that's a powerful witness to an unbelieving 
world. Here's the big idea, and I'll give you a few application points. The big idea this morning is that the fruit of abiding in Christ is love for one another, not out of force, but friendship and mission. The fruit of abiding in Christ is love for one another, not out of force, not because we're forced to or simply because we're we're commanded to. In fact, there's no imperative in this passage, just subjunctives, just so that you ought to, right? Not out of force, but friendship. It's because of our friendship with Christ that we are friends with one another, but also mission. For the sake of Jesus' mission, please love one another, strive for unity, reconcile our differences for the sake of our witness, for the sake of Jesus' mission. Now, here's some applications, specifically in our church. I'm going to start with the corporate and go to the individual. First is community groups are one of the places where loving one another and mission intersect. It's not the only place. Is not the only place, but it's one of the places in our church where you have the intersection of loving one another and you can also insert mission. You see, what happens with our open community groups, that there are certain community groups that are open to newcomers and seekers. And in those community groups, you're going to love one another, meaning in the community group, there's believers loving one another. But when you invite your non-Christian friend, they might not want to come to a church service. But they might come to your community group's, uh, you know, barbecue or gathering. And when they come, and you're not even like presenting the gospel in their face yet, but as you begin to share with each other and pray for each other, the unbeliever gets to see that, just like I mentioned before. And so community groups is a place where in-reach and outreach can connect. You know, sometimes in churches, we, we separate in-reach from outreach. We look at outreach as projects, right? This is purely for the unbeliever. We're doing these projects Outreach projects, VBS, you know, basketball outreach, short-term missions, and then there's in-reach where we, we close and it's just believers loving on each other. I, I think there's room for those two ministries, but there has to be an intersection because sometimes, or all the time, I should say, what the unbelieving world needs to see the most, again, is actually the most transformative work. They need to see lives changed in community. People come for community. Do you understand that I love preaching, our pastors love preaching, but we are in a world now where everybody can find good preaching online, online. We're coming to a day where many people in the subsequent generations might not only come to church, mainly to hear the Word of God proclaimed. Obviously, we believe in the the supremacy of the Word of God, especially being preached and proclaimed, but a lot of times now, and it's true for some of you, I'm not number one on your podcast, right? You have some celebrity pastor, and, and two, three, four, five, I won't even make your top 100, right? I know who you listen to, you know, the guy on the other side of the 71, or the guy over in Sun Valley, or the guy who is in Minneapolis, right? You listen, <laughs> right? John Piper, you know, you listen to someone in Texas, you know, um, you listen to someone who's not Asian, that's great. And at the end of the day, as good as we preach, as hard as we work, you're going to come for several things. You're going to come for community because you can't reproduce that in the same way online. That's not something you can download. You can't download somebody loving on you in the same way tangibly, delivering food, laying their hands on you, praying for you, right, when you're sick, visiting you when you're sick, 
walking with you through sin. You can't download that you, or, or stream it. <laughs> Nobody downloads anymore. You can't Spotify that. I don't have Spotify. <laughs> Not going to pay for it either. <laughs> you know, and, and so, so you, there are things that you can't find online. That's what people want in church. And one of the things that's going to draw the secret of non-Christian is community but transformative community, different from the soccer club or the country club. Transformative community, people with real sin, real anger, real baggage, real issues, receiving healing and transformation and prayer in community. The other thing, of course, are ministries for children and youth. That's always something you can't really get, but that's another sermon. That's coming, okay, but that's another sermon. But again, what is it that you can't really get online. It's friendship and mission. Friendship. People want friendship, true, genuine friendship, and they need mission. They need a purpose in life. And the greatest purpose, you see the thing is, you can get people who are very different. And let's start with the secular. But if they've lost somebody to cancer, they might unite together and say, hey, cancer research, or, or like a cancer 5K or something like that. Let's do it, breast, breast cancer 5K. Like you don't know each other. Why, why are you willing to train with each other? There's a mission that unites us. You look at Damar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bill safety, and what happened, how his, his cardiac arrest just basically brought people together, caused people, secular people, to start praying. I talked about that in Sunday school a little bit today, how you know, when, when, when the finite moves towards the infinite and the unanswerable, everybody starts to pray. It wasn't politically incorrect for people to pray, right, all of a sudden. But you saw how football brought together the nation. You, you see, if, if that's true of the secular realm, how much more true of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How much more true can friendship, not just driven by our covenant to small group, friendship, not just because we're members of a church, friendship, not because we share the same interests, but friendship that is driven by mission. That's the missional community group. Why are we together? Because we have a common mission and purpose that never goes stale as we want to see people come into our small group, receive Christ, and get baptized, and we have a party. Okay? Is that mission actually will strengthen your friendship. It's like when two missionaries get together and say, you want to reach people? I want to reach people too. There is something, there, is, there was blood spilled for this. Our friendship is not just built on ourselves, but our friendship is built on loving others. Abide in me, remain in me, and you will bear fruit, fruit that will last. If you are abiding in me, you will obey my command, my number one command, love one another. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus knew what he was doing. So I would challenge you that make friends with people and get close to those who are passionate about Jesus' mission. And that will give you community in life, and that will give you purpose in life. Friendship and mission. I'm going to conclude with this. Loving one another. How do we do it? How do we do it personally now? Because when I look in the mirror, I'm not very lovable. <laughs> you know, sometimes we're like, dude, I can't love another Christian. We, he or she's too different. Or, or, man, the only reason why I got to love this person is because they're a Christian. They're so different. You know, I, like I catch myself like that too. You know, sometimes I catch myself, man, if I wasn't a pastor, I would just put this person in their place. 
That's not the right heart. That's not the right heart. <laughs> that is not the right heart. I was at Costco the other day, and my wife will tell you, you know, there was someone being really inconsiderate. You know, they're, they're like in the middle going like this, you know, on their phone and everything. And I was like, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd, you know, and, and like, I'm not even sure if that's another believer. And then right away, I'm like, dude, Hanley, that's not the right heart. Just because you're on vacation, just because you're on vacation doesn't mean you ain't saved now, right? And right there, I was like, I got to repent. So, you know, obviously I didn't do that. But you guys all been, you guys all have done that before where you just get annoyed. But even in the church, you're like, I can't stand this person. What are you really saying? You're saying the, the, the divide between me and him or me and her, it's too wide. I can't cross that bridge. There is no bridge. We different. He cheers for the Giants. I cheer for the Dodgers. Well, Darren and I are friends, <laughs> right? The divide is not too wide. And you know how you do that? It's a spiritual discipline. Loving one another doesn't start with the another. It starts with what Jesus said. Go back to reflect on his greater love is none than this than laying down his life for us. Put yourself back at the foot of the cross every single day. You will be reminded of God's grace and mercy and love towards you. I know it's challenging to love other people, but whenever you catch yourself in the heart, not loving another believer in Christ, okay, all you got to do is go back to the cross and say, he and I, she and I, we're the same. We both deserved hell. Look in the mirror, remember our sinfulness before God, and remember whatever the divide you see between you and your, 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 your uh, fellow brother or sister in Christ, however wide the gap, imagine the divide that existed between you and God. God looked down from heaven, and he saw that divide. It was too wide. God is sinless, right? And we're sinful and fallen, and yet the Son of God, he bridged that divide on the cross. He took our place on the cross, died for our sins, bore the judgment of God, then three days later, he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. I just want you to imagine in your greatest moments of shame, in your greatest moments of shame. Some of you don't know Jesus this morning. I want you to hear this. Sometimes you're thinking, think about who you choose to be your friends and how you would want to be treated. And if we were Jesus, we would not, you, would, you would not want you to be, you wouldn't be friends with you if you were Jesus, right? This is what we do to Jesus. Jesus, please forgive me. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, then you go. And you struggle and you sin. And every day we cheat on him in different ways, in big and small ways. Yet every time we go back to him, the cross still stands. He still loves us, right? He, and, and sometimes we deal with sin that's so shameful, that's so heavy, we look at our past. There's some of you sitting in here this morning, and you're thinking, you know what, this Jesus thing, Hanley, you know, there's a reason I'm sitting in church. I'm not against it, but I don't think it's for me because I don't think that Jesus could love me because I've had an abortion in the past or that I've, I'm divorced or I made some mistakes in life or, or, or you don't know me. You know, it's, it's almost like you're thinking that your shame and sin would crush Jesus. Let me give you good news. God the Father crushed Jesus. Your sins did not crush Jesus. God the Father crushed Jesus with his judgment and even bearing your sins. And Jesus came up alive three days later and said, I love you and I want you to be my son. I want to be your friend. Okay, I want you to be a friend of God. And so, so in those moments where you want to judge another person, just think of how much... Jesus forgives us and loves us unconditionally. He rose from the grave because of his resurrection. Our dead hearts were made alive in Christ. Because of Christ, we can love anyone. The cross is the bridge that fills that divide between us and God. It is the same love. It's the cross of Christ that can bridge any divide with fellow believers. 
If you don't know Christ this morning, I want to invite you to receive Christ. I want you to confess that you're a sinner in need of God's grace and ask him to change your heart and he will change you and he will save you. Jesus Christ came, he died for your sins and he rose again. If you surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord, he will change your heart. It's not just, Christianity is not about obeying commandments. It's about the commandments that we obey because of the love of Christ that changes us. It's about the heart. And if you want to know more about Christ or you want to talk more, I want to invite you to go to the Next Steps table after service. After service, Gabe and I will be there until 1230, and we would love to talk to you about Jesus and to help you take your next steps. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone in here this morning who does not know you as their personal love and Savior, uh, as their personal Lord and Savior, and they have not yet received your love in full, Lord, I pray, Lord, that they would experience your conviction and your love this morning that they would experience what it means to be loved even as a sinner and to be made into a son or daughter of God. I pray, Lord, that you would save them this morning. Lord, I want to pray for the rest of us. It's hard to love others because our hearts, our sinful flesh has conditioned us to love ourselves. But I pray, Lord, that you would remind us daily of who we were at the cross and how you came down to earth to die for us and how you saw that we were shameful, unlovable, that we would continue to sin against you, but yet you gave it all for us to change our hearts and to make us new. You weren't ashamed of us. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that your cross would transform us so that we could love one another for the sake of our salvation and our service for mission. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.